Section 29 of the Letters of Madame de Sévigné to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 88. The Rocks, Sunday, September the 15th, 1680. What infinite obligations does my heart owe you, and how happy you have made it by permitting me to hope for your presence this winter. I have read over and over again the delightful letter I so fondly and impatiently expected. I said to myself, yes, this is the voice of my child, who assures me that she shall come to Paris soon after all saints. Oh, how great the joy to have such comfortable assurance in my possession. You surprise me at the profound secrecy that our lovely saint, readers note, François Julie, eldest daughter of Monsieur de Grignon by his first wife, back to main text. The profound secrecy that our lovely saint observes of her noble and pious intentions to Madame de Jeanne. It is so natural to talk of what we ardently wish, of what the heart is full of, that it is doing penance beforehand to keep silence on such occasions. But such is her disposition. She speaks on this subject only to her father alone, as it is he alone who is to determine the duration of a residence which she will be sorry to have protracted. By depriving herself of the pleasure of communicating her intentions, she finds them more strongly confirmed in her breast. I cannot at this distance discover what has become of the crowd that so lately swarmed in your castle. I left you, I thought, in the midst of a fair. But since I now find you reposing on your little bed, you must certainly have found means to escape from the throng. Mungo Bear has not written to me, and you mention your health very slightly. You ought to have informed me whether the medicines you are taking have the desired effect, and whether this thinness upon thinness is likely to reduce you to your former state. It is a sad misfortune that what does you service in one way should injure you in another, it throws a damp upon the satisfaction we should otherwise feel. We are at present among a set of persons with whom we make great use of both our reason and reasoning. You know, my child, what a good hearer I am, thanks to God and you, as they say in this country. I have lost, by dint of listening to you, the gross ignorance I possessed on many subjects. This is a pleasure I now feel the advantage of. We've had here a party of two at Ombert and Revesis, and the next day, Altrachena. Monsieur de Montmorin came. You know he has a great deal of wit. But the Dame, who does not live quite a hundred miles from this place, my son, who knows a perfect master of disputation and... Corbinelli's letters, making four, and I am audience for them. They entertain me exceedingly. Monsieur de Montmorin perfectly understands your philosophy and controverts it stoutly. 
My son maintains the cause of your father as also Dame, and Corbinelli in his letters takes the same side, but they are not all more than a match for Montmorin. He insists that we can have no ideas but what are imparted through the medium of the senses. My son contends that we think independently of our senses. For instance, we think that we think. Footnote. We are agreeably surprised to see at this era, in the heart of Brittany, a gentleman who so ably refuted the system of innate ideas and already exhibiting the theory of Locke. For though the English philosopher was in Paris in 1675, I do not think his opinions were ever promulgated there, or that they were even at that time published. But Hobbes, and particularly Gassendi, had raised objections to the meditations of Descartes, of which the principles had sprung up in able heads. But what deceives Madame de Sévigny here is the word to think, ill understood, and applied to many secondary operations of the understanding. Its too general signification disguises its origin. Descartes himself was mistaken by not submitting this word sufficiently to the analysis which he himself invented. Back to main text. My son contends that we think independently of our senses. For instance, we think that we think. This is in general the subject of our disputations, which have been carried on with great spirit and have delighted me extremely. Could you, my child, have made a party in this conversation by your letter, as Corbinelli has done? You would have strengthened a little our Sévigny. And now I mention him, I must acquaint you that he is still very far from being well, though he thinks himself out of danger, as indeed I do also. But he is tired of doctors as well as you. He has taken more medicines than were necessary. They have acted upon his blood and heated it to such a degree that every day some of those horrible eruptions appear, which are so very disagreeable both to those who suffer and to those who see them. Thus the poor fellow is happy to have a little respite that he may repose himself. Yesterday I observed with admiration how very easy it is to console ourselves for the want of play by a better avocation, and how patient we are while we are squandering our money in farthings, as I said the other day at Rennes. But without imitating you, I hate a bad copy of a good original, and I shall tell you that my age and experience make me wish not to have always such demands upon me, and that I could now and then put a little wit into my poor head. Indeed, it is what I am every day endeavouring to do when in my closet or my wood. You will not perhaps be displeased to know the person who has engaged us in play of late. It is a tolerably pretty woman from Vitre, who has been here three nights, and during her stay we've hardly had the cards out of our hands. She is so passionately fond of them. How much better does a Mademoiselle de Grignon spend her time, happy creature? In reading your letters over more carefully, I find she speaks without reserve of her intentions to Madame de Janet, 
and that it is the only conversation she had with Monsieur de Grignon that she conceals from her. But still I cannot help wondering that she should mention the one without the other. It must be no small satisfaction to her to have the conversation of so prudent and good a person. I reverence more than ever the wise dispensations of Providence when I reflect how it turns the steps you are about to take to my advantage and I already begin to enjoy in imagination the pleasure I am to receive. I ask a thousand pardons. I have met with a little book of madrigals, footnote, by La Sablière, back to main text, containing the prettiest things in the world. I must endeavour to bring them into favour with you this winter. It is a pleasure to have a bad memory. We are reading Sarcin again, and I am as much delighted with him as at first. This is the case also with Les Petites Lettres. We find something new in these, and we add others according to our fancy. Your brother has an excellent knack at furnishing these amusements. I had a mind to dip again into the prejudices. Footnote. A work of Monsieur Nicole's entitled Préjugés légitimes contre les Calvinistes. Well-founded prejudices against the Calvinists. Back to main text. I think them admirable, but what crowns the whole, my dearest child, is that these things all lead directly to you. Oh, how sweet the consolation to think that we shall meet once more. Alas, a whole year has passed in continual adieux, mortifying occupation. I cannot look upon the past with so much tranquillity as you do. It is to me a source of the bitterest uneasiness. At least it has been so, till I read the pleasing assurance of your return. Now I forgive it, in consideration of the future, which offers itself to my imagination fraught with hopes that make amends for all. Letter 89, The Rock, Sunday, September the 22nd, 1680 you are so much of a philosopher, my beloved child, that there is no such thing as giving vent to the transports of the heart with you. You are continually anticipating hopes, and you pass over the joy of possession to contemplate the hour of separation. Believe me, we ought to manage differently the blessings which Providence has in store for us. After having made you this reproach, it remains with me honestly to confess that I deserve it as much as you do, and that it is impossible for anyone to be more alarmed at the cruel rapidity of time, or to have a stronger foretaste of those sorrows which generally follow in the train of pleasures. In short, my child, this life is a perpetual checkerwork of good and evil, pleasure and pain. When in possession of what we desire, we are only so much the nearer losing it, and when at a distance from it, we live in the expectation of enjoying it again. It is our business, therefore, to take things as God is pleased to send them. 
For my part, I am resolved to indulge myself in the delightful hope of seeing you, without any mixture of alloy. You were very unjust, my love, in the judgment you pass upon yourself. You say that though people at first think you agreeable, upon a longer acquaintance they cease to love you. It is precisely the reverse. You have a certain air of superiority that makes people afraid of you and despair of ever being admitted into the number of your friends. But when once they know you, it is impossible not to be attached to you. And if any of your acquaintance seem to shun you, it is only because they love you, and cannot be the thought of not being so much loved in return as they wish. I have heard many persons extol the charms of your friendship to the skies, and afterward reflect on their own want of merit, which prevented them from preserving that happiness. Thus each blames himself for a degree of coldness. But where there is no real cause of complaint on either side, it seems only to require a little leisurely conversation to be good friends again. I have a great desire to read Terence. Nothing could give me greater pleasure and to see the originals of which the copies have afforded me so much pleasure. My son will translate to me satire against foolish amours. Putnachi no doubt alludes here to the well-known description of the extravagance of lovers which is to be found in Terence's eunuch, scene one beginning in these words, in amore haec omnia insurvitia, etc., Reader's note, in love, there are all these evils. Back to main text. He ought to be able to write one himself, or at least to profit by this. If the situation he is in at present does not correct him, I know not what will. We read books of controversy. One has lately been published in answer to the prejudices. Footnote. Written by the Protestant minister Claude, entitled a defence of the Reformation against the well-founded prejudices of Monsieur Nicole, a work of Monsieur Nicole's entitled Préjugé légitime contre les Calvinistes, well-founded prejudices against the Calvinists, back to main text. We read books of controversy. One has lately been published in answer to the prejudices to which I wish Monsieur Arnaud had replied but I fancy that he has been forbidden, and it is thought more advisable to leave this book unanswered, though it may do injury to religion than to permit the publication of another that may serve to justify the Jansenists from the errors with which they have been reproached, but more of this another time. I have been promised the coadjutor's speech, but I have not yet had it. My son and several others speak highly in its praise. Letter 90, The Rocks, Wednesday, November the 26th, 1684. So much the worse for you, my dear child, if you do not read over your letters. Your indolence robs you of a great pleasure, which is not one of the least of the evils it may occasion you. For my part, I read them over and over again. They constitute all my joy, all my sorrow, all my occupation so that you are the centre and cause of all. 
I shall begin this letter with you. Is it possible that what you tell me can be true? That when you spoke to the king, you were like a person beside yourself, and so lost, to use your own expression, in the blaze of majesty, that you knew not what you said, nor could recollect any of your ideas? Never, never can I believe that my beloved daughter, always so remarkable for her ready wit and happy presence of mind, could have been in such a situation. I must confess that from what His Majesty said to you, quote, that he would do something for Monsieur de Grignon, end quote, I by no means understand that he merely alluded to the great expense Monsieur de Grignon had lately incurred. No, the King's answer appeared to me to be this construction. Madam, the favour you ask of me is a trifle. I will do something more for Grignon. Meaning, I suppose, the affair of the survivorship, which he knew would be a capital point for your family. I had no idea of the little present in question, and you know what I said upon that subject in my last letter. It rests with you, my dear, to set me right, and I beg you will do so, for I do not love to view things in a wrong light. Madame de la Fayette has written me word that you were an angel of beauty at court, that you spoke to the king, and that it was thought you were soliciting a pension for your husband. I returned a slight answer that I believed it was to entreat his majesty to consider the great expenses Monsieur de Grignon had been obliged to incur in Provence, and that was all. You relate inimitably the story of Monsieur de Viquier and his mother-in-law. There seems no danger of her proving a phèdre to him. Had you read that part of your letter over, you would have easily conceived the manner in which it struck me. And it's not unlike the story of Joconde, reader's note Mona Lisa. And the chambermaid yawning with fatigue at her long waiting is admirable. Reader's note. The story was of Monsieur de Viquier making love to Madame d'Aumont, his mother-in-law's chambermaid, whom she sacked. Before leaving, the chambermaid let Monsieur de Viquier into a secret which compromised the honour of Madame d'Aumont. Viquier lay in wait and observed his mother-in-law secretly entertaining a male visitor. He hastened to Versailles to spread the scandalous news and was strongly reprimanded by the king and the court. He ended by declaring that he had been mistaken. Back to main text. I think Madame Domon's conduct very praiseworthy. It ought to silence the world and satisfy her husband. What great doings in Savoy! I cannot believe the king will withhold his pity and assistance from the young Princess of Baden, when she represents to him the situation of her mother, abandoned by all her children. I do not believe she will set out till her mother is gone. This good mother, it is true, has so much fire about her that it is difficult to persuade oneself she is not still in the prime of her youth. The Princess de Tarente intends to receive her at Vitre. 
As for Madame de Marbeuf, she is one of her old acquaintance. They have spent whole winters together in supping and playing at the Palace of Soissons. You may judge how readily this will be renewed at Rennes. I have told my son the story of the Chevalier de Soissons' engagement. We could neither of us have believed the eyes of a grandmother retained still so much power. Reader's Note The young Chevalier de Soissons fell in love with his aunt, though she was already a grandmother. But she took as her lover his Swedish rival, Baron Bagnier, whom the Chevalier de Soissons challenged to a duel, and Bagnier died of his wounds. Back to main text. I do not think the raising of the siege of Buddha worth mentioning to you. It is a piece of news hardly of sufficient consequence to obtain a place in my letter. Footnote. After having beaten the Turks and repulsed the troops they were leading to the assistance of Buddha, the Duke of Lorraine was at length obliged to raise the siege, which had lasted for nearly four months, back to main text. I fancy the Dauphiness, however, will take the pains to be sorry. Footnote, the Dauphiness was always a German in her heart. This partiality, which the subsequent war increased and rendered more offensive, contributed with other eccentricities of character to alienate the affection of her husband, the king, and the whole court, back to main text. I fancy the Dauphiness, however, will take the pains to be sorry. Her brother has exposed himself so much, and acquitted himself so well in this expedition, that it is a pity such an elector should be obliged to return from it. Our worthy is very ill, with one of those bad colds and coughs which we have seen him afflicted with. He is in his little closet. We take better care of him here than could be done at Paris. My daughter-in-law has gone through all the hot and cold regimen of the Capuchins without being affected either one way or the other by them. When the weather is fine, as it has been for the last three days, I venture out about two o'clock and walk backward and forward before the gardeners who are cutting wood and representing the picture of winter, but without stopping to contemplate the scene. And after I have enjoyed all the heat of the sun, I return to the house, leaving the evening to those of a more hardy constitution. In this way do I govern myself to please you, and very often I do not stir out of the house at all. Coulange's chair and a few books that my son reads admirably, and now and then a little conversation, will compose the whole of my occupation during the winter, and the subject of your anxiety, for I shall exactly follow your orders in all points and everywhere. My son understands perfectly well what Wednesday means. Footnote, this was one of Madame de Sévigné's post days, back to main text. To say the truth, we should be very dull without him, and he without us. But he manages matters so well that there is generally a party of ombre in my apartments, and at intervals we read and make comments on what we read. You know what sort of place the rocks is.
We have read a folio volume through in little more than a week. We have been engaged with Monsieur Nicole, The Lives of the Fathers of the Desert, and The History of the Reformation in England. In short, those who are happy enough to have a taste for reading never need to be at a loss for amusement. End of section 29